Hello everybody, this is George Bathgate and uh, welcome to the fourth episode of The Accidental Curator. Um, it's February the 9th, 2021, and I'm coming to you from my little home office slash recording studio um, in Kitsilano, Vancouver. Our last episode was with um, was an interview with Famous Empty Sky, a well-known collage artist who lives on Maine Island. And this episode is going to be um, a story. If you had a chance to listen to the introductory episode, um, I kind of outlined what I was hoping to do, which was have a mix of interviews, stories, and a little bit of a creative narrative that I'm working on. It's going to be semi-fictional pieces that I'll stick in as well uh, about my time on Maine Island. So today's episode is not fictional. Um, it's from a collection of short stories I've written over the last three or four years um, that I've placed on some of my websites. And uh, I just pulled this one out because it's uh, an experience I had as a young man hitchhiking across Canada back in the 70s. And it's called The Mass Murderer and the Old Dutch Potato Chip Truck. I was 17 and I'd been hitchhiking for 55 days and I was coming home. It was August 28, 1972 and my trans-Canadian adventure had taken me from Victoria, BC to Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island and back, almost. This was my last full day on the road and I was a consummate pro at the art of traveling by thumb. I'd had some close calls and near misses in the previous two months, but this was the home stretch and I was confidently optimistic of making it back to Victoria by the following day. Maybe even this day, if all went well. Aunt Alma was a sweetheart and offered to drive me to the highway outside of Lethbridge to begin my day. But she was prone to worry. Oh, George, I just don't feel right leaving you out here by the side of the road, all alone, she said. Her eyebrows furrowed, her eyes scrunched, and her mouth turned down with a look of great concern. In the middle of nowhere? Don't worry, Aunt Elma, I said. I won't have to wait long. And I've got that sandwich you made me. I'll be fine. I gave her one final hug before grabbing my backpack, opening the car door and stepping out onto the gravel shoulder. Thanks for the lift, Aunt Elma. See ya, I shouted as she pulled away. I turned to face the oncoming traffic and stuck out my thumb. It was a hot, dry August Monday in southern Alberta. Rolling plains of grasses, scrub, and crops, where my Swedish grandparents had settled 60 years earlier to grow sugar beets. I didn't have to wait long for a ride, catching a lift in a truck with a young farmer named Dave, with a pronounced stutter, who took me past Fort McLeod and Pincher Creek to the small farming town of Cowley on the edge of the foothills. The next lift was with a heavy equipment operator who was willing to put up with my company for the next five hours all the way to Trail BC, where he worked. We breezed through the foothills and the Crow's Nest Pass in the southern Rockies 
and slipped across the BC-Alberta border into the Kootenays along Highway 3, one of the most scenic drives in BC and a personal favorite of mine. This was a great ride as it took me almost halfway home. I sat back and enjoyed the view, engaging in small talk with the driver, regaling him with stories from the road. From my experience, it usually didn't take more than an hour between rides, maybe two if there was a long lineup or you were stuck in a particularly conservative redneck area where kids with long hair like me were frowned upon. As a blue-collar town with its fair share of hippie kid bias, I expected that leaving trail might take longer than usual, but was surprised that three hours lapsed before someone decided to stop and pick me up. Finally, some heads, which is a counterculture term for hippies, stopped to give me a ride. We're just going to Christina Lake. Where are you off to? They asked. I'm heading home to Victoria, so anywhere further west is great, thanks. I threw my pack into the back seat and climbed in after it. It's about 6 p.m., and the drive to Christina Lake is about an hour. The unexpected delay in trail has changed my plans. I'll try and make it to the Okanagan tonight, I said. Maybe a Soyuz or Penticton to find a hostel. The driver and his friend were American draft dodgers in their 20s, living on a commune near Christina Lake. Canadian roads, communes, and hostels were full of young American men fleeing the draft and the Vietnam War during these years, and the Kootenays seemed to be a particularly popular destination. They dropped me off at what is now known as the Tempo General Store and Gas Station shortly after 7 p.m. in the village of Christina Lake. The spot looked like it had good hitchhiking feng shui. It was close to a gas station and store with access to food and drinks and washrooms, and it was on the village strip where cars would have to slow down and abide by the reduced speed limits. Slower cars usually translated into more rides. I imagined that I'd be in a Soyuz by sundown in time to grab a bed and maybe a bite of food at the local hostel. There was no shortage of traffic. It was summertime and Highway 3, officially known as the Crow's Nest Highway, was full of holiday travelers. By 8 o'clock, as the evening light began to wane and many cars had passed, I became slightly concerned. I don't like to hitchhike at night, I thought. Things can get weird. By nine o'clock, it was dusk, and despite striking my most pathetic and needy hitchhiking postures, I hadn't had any bites, except for the increasing number of mosquitoes that filled the air. By ten o'clock, it became clear to me that something was wrong. People were certainly driving by slowly, too slowly, and looking fearfully at me through their rolled-up car windows. I wonder what's up. This is just as bad as trail, I thought. I was resigning myself to hauling out my sleeping bag and finding shelter in a nearby park. I'll give it another 15 minutes. A bed would be nice. Then, an old Dutch potato chip truck pulled over to the side of the road ahead of me. At first, I wasn't sure if this was a ride or if the driver had to deal with an emergency. He opened the door of his cab, got out, and walked towards me. Hey there, I bet you've been stuck here for a while, haven't you? He asked. 
Yeah, I said. Man, it's been like three or four hours as I picked up my gear. What's going on? Well, there's a murderer loose in this area. Yeah, that's right. He killed some people in a campsite. Just walked in and shot him. The RCMP and local police are looking for the guy. Happened this afternoon. Anyways, I'm driving to Kelowna, so I can get you that far. No wonder it's been such a shitty day for hitchhiking, I replied. I was stuck in trail for three hours this afternoon, too. Hey, I appreciate the lift, man. I just want to get out of here. Rather than admitting me into the passenger side of his cab, though, he opened the back door to the windowless truck and said, Hop in. The voices in William Bernard Lapine's head told him that he was chosen to save the world from a nuclear holocaust. Although he had spent time in the East Kootenai Mental Health Unit and the Riverview Mental Hospital in Coquitlam, from whence he escaped on July the 30th, he hadn't exhibited any violent behavior. On this day, however, starting around 9 a.m., this August the 28th, 1972, Lapine, armed with a 22 caliber rifle and a 30 caliber rifle, walked into an orchard outside Oliver, B.C., where 16-year-old Willard Potter and 71-year-old Charles Wright were both working on some irrigation equipment and shot them both dead. Lapine was a 27-year-old American who had worked for a time in the orchards near Summerland and doing maintenance work for the municipality of Creston before his slide into schizophrenia. Symptoms typically come on gradually in young adulthood and, and can include delusional thinking, hallucinations, and hearing voices that do not exist. Today, Lapine's tragic internal commands dictated that he kill random innocent people to stave off Armageddon. He put his first victim's bodies in their Land Rover and drove northeast towards a campground off the Kettle Valley Road. Around 11 a.m., he discarded their bodies in the bushes off the road and entered the campground. The Clarks and the Wilsons had been friends for a long time and liked to go camping together. The Kettle Valley Recreation Area was one of their favorite places to park their motorhomes and spend a weekend hiking, picking huckleberries, and sitting around the fire at night, drinking a few beers and sharing some laughs. Around noon on this day, William Lapine entered the campsite, chatted briefly with Lester and Phyllis Clark and Alan and Mildred Wilson, and then left. A short while later, he returned, armed with one of his rifles. He ordered the two couples into a truck and started shooting, killing Phyllis Clark immediately and wounding the other three. After inflicting his horror on the unsuspecting campers, Lapine escaped in his car, while Lester and Alan, bleeding profusely and in shock, placed Phyllis's body in the Clark vehicle and followed the Wilsons 20 kilometers towards Westbridge in search of help. After receiving critical medical care in Westbridge, the wounded survivors were able to give the Royal Canadian Mounted Police the information they needed to begin their manhunt, in which about 25 officers participated. Patrols went out, roadblocks were set up, and radio stations were alerted to warn the public 
that an armed killer was on the loose. By three o'clock that afternoon, as I was being dropped off by the roadside and trail, the hunt for William Lapine was moving into high gear. And then he killed again. How many murders does it take to stop a nuclear holocaust? As he went about his unfathomable mission, neither Lapine nor his internal voices could provide an answer. It's over when it's over, when the shooter is caught or shot. Lapine had driven several hours north to the small village of Edgewood on the shores of the Upper Arrow Lake. It was late afternoon on a beautiful summer day. At the end of August, and 57-year-old Herbert and his 56-year-old wife, Nellie Thomas, were enjoying life and each other's company when the young, unshaven man approached. Nothing could prepare them for what was to follow. Without warning or explanation, Lupine pulled out his rifle and shot and killed them both. After hiding their bodies nearby, he escaped in their car, drove 30 miles north and shot and killed 24-year-old Thomas Posney, who was enjoying a little quiet fishing time on the Lower Arrow Lake near Nacusp. I was surprised that the driver of the old Dutch potato chip truck was putting me in the back of the truck in the dark windowless box with all the merchandise, but it was a lift and I'd been languishing by the side of the road for hours and there was an active shooter, a murderer on the loose. I hopped in and he closed the door. When the driver closed the door, every last bit of light was gone. It became absolutely, completely dark, and I became blind. I had to feel my way with toes and outstretched hands between the boxes of chips, pretzels, and pepperoni sticks to a place against the wall where I could stretch out. It was a 12 by 6 by 6 box, 432 cubic feet of pungent old Dutch product line aromas, salt and vinegar, barbecue, sour cream and onion, cheesy puff corn, ketchup flavored, and original, saturated the air. Just as I was thinking that the driver wouldn't miss a couple of bags of chips, a male voice in the darkness said, Hey man, where you going? I didn't know that I had company in the box. Momentarily startled by this revelation, I tried, with no success, to determine exactly where he was inside the cube, and if there were others. Heading back to Victoria, I replied guardedly, my thoughts turning from chips to murderers. I didn't know there was anyone else in here. Where are you going? I asked. I'm trying to get to Penticton, he replied. Pretty wild about the murderer, eh? He sounded young maybe about my age, and seemed amicable. I wasn't getting a strong vibe of crazy serial killer in the dark, so our conversation turned to comparisons of our experiences on the road. He was from Winnipeg and was going to the Okanagan to pick fruit or find other work. He too had been stuck for hours this afternoon in Selmo before catching a lift with the potato chip Samaritan, or at least the driver seemed like a real old Dutch potato chip truck driver. Maybe he killed the real driver and was impersonating him, we speculated jokingly. And then, in the middle of nowhere, 
the truck slowed down and stopped. We could hear the driver get out of his cab and slam the door. There were noises and muffled voices outside. Moments later, the door flung open and two powerful flashlights beamed in, hurting our eyes, which had become accustomed to the dark. Okay, gentlemen, said the authoritative male voice. I'll have to ask you to get out of the truck. We hopped out, smelling like potato chips, into a cordon of Mounties holding shotguns at the ready, near a roadblock of police cruisers with lights flashing. My initial fear that the driver was the murderer and was stopping to kill us was now replaced by the fear that the cops would search my backpack and find my small stash of marijuana and my pipe. I'll need to see some ID, lads. No doubt you've heard that there's a murderer on the loose. We're just checking to make sure you aren't him, he said. The roadblock had been set up at the junction with Highway 41 to the States in case our fugitive decided to flee south. He was, after all, American. This was the first time I'd seen my traveling companion, another young, long-haired denizen of the hitchhiking culture that was so popular during the late 60s and early 70s. We didn't talk much while we were being scrutinized by the cops. I found out later he was too worried about them finding his stash of hashish and two hits of mescaline. But the police had larger concerns than the contraband of teenage hippies. A second murder victim had been found and four other missing persons reports had been filed. It was bad and appeared to be getting worse. They had to find Lapine. We were back in the windowless potato chip truck talking about the weirdness of our situation and whether or not we should do the mescaline. We decided that it might be a bad idea in the off chance that we might have to disarm a psychopath or brave another police roadblock. The driver had decided to shorten his trip to Kelowna by taking Highway 33 through Westbridge rather than the longer Highway 97 route through the Okanagan. My choice was to get dropped off by the side of the road near Rock Creek around midnight with a mass murderer on the loose and try and get a ride to Soyuz or continue to Kelowna, which would put us in at the hostel around 2 a.m. It was not a difficult choice. We arrived at the hostel shortly before 2 a.m., fully expecting that it would be closed and that we'd have to sleep outside. Luckily, two of the hostel staff were up, quite stoned and playing go, and they let us in. We thanked the driver for delivering us from evil, and he gave us a box of Schneider's pepperoni sticks as a parting gift, which we and our hosts eagerly devoured. Just think munchies. William Lapine was caught and arrested the next morning at Galena Bay and taken to the RCMP office in the cusp before being transferred to Nelson, bringing his murderous rampage to an end. He was ultimately tried and found not guilty by reason of insanity and placed in the forensic psychiatric hospital in Port Coquitlam, where he remains to this day. I made it back to Victoria the following day despite having to wait another three hours outside of Kelowna for a lift. 
likely due to ongoing driver nervousness, which was still heightened due to the previous day's events. My immersion in the darkness, fear, and potato chips has not diminished my enjoyment of old Dutch products. My favorite is still original. Epilogue. Nearly 30 years later, I would meet Jackie and her sister Barbie, who had both become very good friends of mine. As it turned out, they are the granddaughters of Alan and Mildred Wilson, who had been shot and wounded in the campsite in the Kettle Valley on that late August day, and who drove those desperate miles to Westbridge for help. Jackie and Barbie have attended parole hearings for the past 25 years to speak of their family's pain and help prevent the release of William Bernard Lapine. I have been invited to attend one of those hearings and, if the fates allow, I will go. That's the end of episode number four. Thanks so much for joining me today. My name is George Bathgate and this is The Accidental Curator. You've just listened to a little short story that I'd written a few years back called The Mass Murderer and the Old Dutch Potato Chip Truck. Um, I hope to start working on episode five soon. I think that will be um, what I'm calling a chapter in the uh, semi-fictional narrative that I'm working on. And it'll be another two or three weeks before I put that out. But uh, just to let you know, I don't know how you've managed to find this particular uh podcast, but I managed to get it on, since I last recorded, I managed to get it on iTunes podcasts and Google podcasts. And it's also available on um, the host where I've been storing a lot of my audio, a lot of my audio data, which is Podbean. So I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you're having some fun. And if you're interested in future episodes, you can subscribe to this podcast. And if you'd like to leave a comment, that's great. Or share this link with someone you think might be interested as well. And as I mentioned, uh, the Accidental Curator will attempt to reach out with a new episode every two to three weeks. Um, This will be announced through various social media channels. Stay tuned. Thanks. Thanks.